As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show's latest edition, The Weekend Review, where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host. And joining me is the Athletic's very own Jay Harris. Jay, there's been no shortage of things to talk about this weekend. Yeah, I mean, it was the the Premier League's 30th anniversary and I, I don't think they could have asked for much more than that. It had absolutely everything. It, you know, it had tears, fights, it had all the drama, definitely ticked all the boxes. Yeah, 100%. 100%. We're going to talk about what went down at Stamford Bridge and Barcelona's failure to get things going in their opener against Rayo Vallecano. But it would be madness to start anywhere but at Brentford yesterday. They ran out 4-0 winners over Manchester United with all four goals coming in a blistering first half from the Bees. You were there, Jay, and we'll come on to just how good Brentford were. But Manchester United were, I suppose in a word, abject. What is going on with Eric Ten Hag's Red Devils? They just looked completely lost during the game yesterday. I think, you know, you've got a new manager coming in, trying to mix it up and use different formations and different tactics and things like that. But to go from playing Christian Eriksen as a false nine one week to then having him as your deepest line midfielder the following week just kind of smacks of a situation that's really not in a good place. Um, and we know that Eric Ten Hag really values a goalkeeper who's really comfortable with the ball at his feet and has really good distribution. And David Gea is just not that goalkeeper whatsoever. No. And some of the other goals that Brentford scored yesterday came from the fact that Gea is not good at coming off his line. So then Manchester United are basically relying on De Gea to be a really good shot stopper. And then he lets Josh De Silva shot squeeze for his arms and that's not to pin the, the all of the blame for, for the result on De Gea there were so many other things that were wrong with, with Manchester United I shouted out Aaron Hickey you know 20 years old second Premier League um, appearance and I thought he was phenomenal up against Cristiano Ronaldo and, and Marcus Rashford Rashford and Ronaldo and Sancho should have been going into that game thinking you know Brentford are missing two of their key centre-backs in Christopher Iyer and Ethan Pinnock Ben Meese just joined the club. Hickey's very young. We could maybe get at them. They're not all familiar with each other. But Brentford were just so compact. Everyone played amazing. Um, and yeah, it just, just it's crazy to kind of see the wheels come off so quickly of Ten Hag's kind of time at Man United. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because you look at De Gea and, you know, what, what he is good at, as you say, is shot stopping, right? And as soon as he stops offering you that, he isn't offering any of the facets that, that you're seeing. And, you know, up the other end, David Raya, who's kind of usurped him almost in the Spanish pecking order now, was, is so comfortable in all of those things. And we saw it, you know, the week before at Brighton as well with with Robert Sanchez being up the other end. And you're going, OK, so now there are two two goalkeepers, you know, two Spanish goalkeepers as well, which is probably adding to his trauma and malaise after the end of it, I think. But, you know, you look at these keepers and thinking, right, they're doing the things that Ten Hag wants in a goalkeeper. And and you're right, it's not all David De Gea's fault, but, you know, you build from the back and we've seen Ten Hag want to build from the back. I, th I think the other thing about this is, 
expected Manchester United to come out of the blocks fast, considering what happened against Brighton last week. And, you know, yes, the Ericsson to Ronaldo switch is, is a weird one in, in some ways, kind of stylistically, and moving him into that deep line role in some ways is, is confusing, but also they were much better in the second half when he played in that role against Brighton. So it feels like, you know, Ten Hag is trying different things here and he's kind of mixing and matching it in, in many ways to try and work with what he's got. But the pieces he's got in place aren't the ones that suit him or the ones he wants to have. Exactly that. And I think he came out in the press conference after the game yesterday and kind of touched on the fact that Manchester United really need to recruit new bodies and get them in quickly. But to kind of stay on the point about De Gea, there was a, there was a point in the game where Manchester United kind of hit the ball long. Raya rushed off his line and beat Rashford to the ball. And instead of just whacking it up the pitch straight away, he took a touch and kind of just clipped it over Manchester United's defence. And he's clearly, and I'm not trying to link David Raya to Manchester United by any stretch, <laughs> of the imagination. But as you've kind of alluded to, that's the kind of goal goalkeeper that they need. And that's just such a, a deprivation of quality in, in, in other areas of the pitch. I think it's a, a well-known fact that they've needed a defensive midfielder for, for a very long time. So in that regard, you kind of feel for Ten Hag a little bit. He's, um, you know, gone into this Manchester United job expecting to be fully backed. And it feels like He's not really been given all the resources that he should have been done to, to make it a success. So it's uh, proven to be much trickier than I think most people expected, especially after they had a, I know we shouldn't take pre-season too seriously, but yep. there were some encouraging signs and it's just not turned out that way at all. It's, it's one of those, isn't it? You, you look at it and you think, okay, to, to start one season, let's say three years back, without a defensive midfielder or a recognised defensive midfielder, you can excuse. To start two starts to get a bit dodgy. To start three in a row feels like gross mismanagement, frankly. And, and, and that's the kind of point we've got to with United. You know, some pieces have come in and made some sense, but there is still a real lack of someone who, who's going to do that. And there were all these questions at the start about whether Lissandra Martinez would, would come in here, from, obviously came in from Ajax and had played a little bit in that defensive midfield role and Ten Hag was pretty adamant that that's not what he'd brought Lissandro Martinez in for and, and, and I believe him I believe that he didn't want to have him there he wants to have him in a in a centre-back role where he feels he can build from the back but right now it feels like that might be his next only option because he's kind of been stuck in this in this place where he isn't able to field players that can do the things he wants in the roles he wants them to make and and so it's going to be very interesting to see how United line up next week and obviously it's not pretty that you go to Liverpool next and think okay if Brentford are putting four past you in, a, in one week what could Liverpool do to you in this kind of form and, and this kind of sense because there's another uncomfortable one for United after what happened last year but I mean we've seen reports in the post-game mayhem that United were made to come in for a training session today they were meant to have the day off um, there were some slight reports that Eric Ten Hag wanted them to run the 13.6 kilometres they were outrun by Brentford at the GTEC, and that there's also now questions about Cristiano Ronaldo's attitude and application so what happens next for United because it feels like all of the parts all of the component parts are starting to rub against each other in a very dangerous way and we're only two games into this season yeah, there's a couple of things I'll fly off off the back of, but like you said, with um, the kind of players coming in for training today, I think that's a really, really worrying sign. If you're a new manager at a football club and two games into the, the season being officially underway, you feel like your message is not getting across and you're having to, to bring the players in on a day off yeah. to kind of put them through the motions and make them work harder. And that's definitely something that was a, a theme. I spoke to a lot of Brentford players after the game yesterday, Josh De Silva, Ivan Toni, Matthias Jensen. And the, the consistent theme was that we worked so much harder than them, we outfought them. And if a new manager can't get his players to do that, that's a really worrying sign. And in terms of where Manchester United go from here, you spoke about the defensive mid midfielder. He made three substitutions at halftime and one of them was Fred. Fred had a horrible game up against Josh De Silva. Josh yeah. De Silva was, was all over him. But then playing Martinez at centre-back didn't work out at all. And this is something I've, I've already written about. I'm not going to get into a debate about whether a, a five-foot-nine centre-back is or isn't a good signing. But I think it's important to acknowledge that Brentford throughout last season would hit the ball long towards Ivan Toney. And he's so good in the air that he can kind of hold the ball up, bring it down, bring others into play. I think he had the third most aerial duels in the Premier League last season and he won 56% of them. So Ten Hag and his coaching staff should be looking at that thinking, we need to go with height here. Yes, Martinez, you're great at playing with the ball at your feet, but to kind of neutralise what Brentford are going to do, 
we need to play Varane in from the start. Or we need to switch up that combination. And for Ten Hag to not do that and then take off Martinez at halftime, it's almost an admission. I got that horribly wrong. And, you know, Tony was winning the ball in the air so often. In the first minute of the game, he looked at David Rea, pointed up in the sky. And after that, it was just hitting the balls towards Tony and Martinez every single time. And on another day, Martinez probably would have picked up a yellow card for a couple of times where he's, you know, nudging Tony in the back and things like that. So, yes, you could move Martinez to to CDM, but then you've spent £50 million on the centre-back to move into CDM. And that's kind of the, the muddled thinking that just seems to underline Man United from top to bottom at the moment. It's a, it's one of those because obviously Martinez has a brilliant spring and, and Fabio Cannavaro was five nine right. This can work. You can you can make this work in certain areas. The other kind of part of that is he's obviously paired with Harry Maguire, who is is a much better aerial presence. I think and most would agree. And, and if Tony is trying to peel off and, and get onto Martinez every time, you should be aware as a centre back duo to be able to be like, right, this is not working. You know, you're going to have to come in here and, and make this work and and kind of cover for each other's weaknesses and strengths. That's what that's what good pairings do. And obviously it's early in their tenure together. But equally, you'd think, okay, if we're losing every aerial duel here, we're going to have to start to work this out because it's not working as we are. Um, and, and there didn't seem to be any of that cohesion, which I thought was maybe one of the most interesting points of it. it you know, when, when you do have people who have a synergy, who have that kind of relationship, who who have understood each other's strengths and weaknesses, they cater to each other. They, they, you know, they help each other out. And there was none of that with United. It all feels like very disparate, maybe. You know, they, they feel like they haven't worked out exactly what it is and they're not able to cover for each other. And I think it it, it, that's a multitude of the issues that are going on here. You know, the centre defensive midfielders that don't exist can't protect the centre backs. The centre backs aren't protecting each other. The full backs are being left exposed and, and Brentford were brilliant at exposing that down that left-hand side, you know, time and time again. And so I think when you're looking at that and you're going, okay, this is, we kind of expected Ten Hag to come in and, and coach, right? It's not necessarily all about, okay, you bring in a manager and he brings in 200 millions worth of new players and, and makes them into a team. It's also about raising the, the level of the players who were there before. And that doesn't seem to have started yet. Now, obviously it's early and I'm not writing Ten Hag off because I think he's a wonderful manager and a wonderful coach. But equally right now with the pressure that's at Manchester United straight away, he's put himself in a very dangerous situation. And, and, and that's that's quite hard to overcome whilst you're in season. And it's one of those things, Conte never joins, I know he did last time, but never joins teams in inverted commas um, in the middle of a season because he doesn't feel like he can do things without a full pre-season to back them. That time has been and gone. On. And that's my worry for Ten Hag is it, where you're going next because you haven't got the break to fix this before, you know, before you have the first 15 fixtures of the season. And even then, everyone's going to go off to the World Cup. I don't see where things are going to get sorted out very quickly and unless they go into the transfer market and back them. And that just doesn't appear to be the way that things are running. But even if they do go into the transfer market with their record over the last four or five years, potentially even longer than that, do you really trust, trust them, them to, right. to do? You, do you trust them to get it right? Um, I'm not too sure that you do. And again, as you've kind of mentioned, Ten Hag would have kind of been looking at the first five, ten fixtures of his of his reign and thinking, right, Brighton, Brighton away. Um, no, sorry, Brighton at home, Brentford away. They're probably two winnable games, yeah. and then they play Liverpool, Leicester City, Arsenal. So to have got no points from those first two games. And having to go up against a Liverpool team who we all know are incredible, an Arsenal team who have really hit a rich vein of form, and then Leicester City who still got very talented players on their day, I'm not going to be doom and gloom and say that they're going <laughs> to emerge from their first opening five fixtures with zero points, but they're going to be in a really, really tight spot unless, they, unless something happens really quickly. But we don't see that happening. And that's before you kind of, as you kind of mentioned, from the consistent rumours and kind of just drama that surrounds Cristiano Ronaldo and things like that. It, you do feel for Ten Hag a little bit because he's almost inherited a poison chalice and he's just come in and he's got all these kind of, you know, situations going on around him. It's almost like whack-a-mole. He hits one problem and, a, yeah. and another 10 pop up from somewhere. It's uh, It's crazy. Yeah, it's the it's, it's Achilles and the Hydra, isn't it? Uh, it just keeps sprouting heads. This, <laughs> this is really is problems at United. But look, as much as United were dreadful, they were well beaten in, in a large part because Brentford were absolutely brilliant, especially in that first half. And particularly, I thought Ivan Tony, as you mentioned, Aaron Hickey and Matthias Jensen, who I thought had one of the best forty-five minutes I've ever seen um, from a player in, in that kind of situation. Uh, all of them unbelievable. What a performance from Thomas Frank's bees. 
Yeah, and on Matthias Jensen, it's uh, it's quite a funny one because he, you know, he played 31 times in the Premier League last season and got one assist. And in 20 minutes against Manchester United, he had a goal and assist. So he's already massively, you know, beaten his his direct goal involvement record from last season. But I think it was just Brentford always come with a clear plan. Whether they're playing a team where they're expecting to have more possession and they line up in a 4-3-3 or a team where they're kind of expecting to sit off a little bit more and it's a 3-5-2, but they were fantastic at defending deep and cutting off spaces. I think we've all already kind of touched upon how high they pressed up the pitch. You know, yeah. De Gea had a nightmare passing up from the back. Maguire had a nightmare passing up from the back. And it's so funny because, you know, I've been covering Brentford for a year now, and obviously the last six months or so have been dominated by Christian Eriksen. Every single one of Thomas Frank's press conferences, the, the words Christian Eriksen have, have, have been brought up. And there was a big theme in the build-up to this game about how how much of Brentford going to miss him over the course of the season. Do you miss him? And I think people kind of forgot, not only does Thomas Frank know Ericsson really well from their time together at Brentford, but Thomas Frank was coaching Christian Ericsson when he was in charge of Denmark's under-17s 10, 15 years ago. So if there was any manager in the Premier League who could come up with a plan to shut him down so effectively, it would have been Thomas Frank. So to see that happen in such an effective way, I think it's just such a such a great advertisement for, for what Brentford are as a club. Really efficiently run. All those players, I think you've potentially seen statistics about how Brentford's starting eleven. I think, costs £50 million. And, you know, five of Manchester United's players individually cost more than that. Yep. So it's a fantastic performance, but you don't get that unless you're a team that's so well-drilled, great tactical plan and just superb man management. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was it was almost faultless. I mean, to a man, probably. Um, but but across the kind of park, you know, falling up at half time, and yes, things can kind of go wrong in the second half. But it would take something dramatic um, for, for things to fall apart at that point, and that doesn't seem to happen at Brentford. You know, these dramatic swings of uh, of consciousness where it's brilliant for a half and then dreadful for a half. They were happy in the second half to kind of let the game play out in front of them, and and that's how it panned out. And you know, when you have such a dominant forty five minutes it just tends to set the tone and, and look that's the bit a big win that the Brentford needed obviously you know to be 2-0 down in the first game against Leicester and to bounce back to, to that two all and then go on and kick on from there and then win 4-0 in your second puts them in a very very good position I think going forward because especially the first 45 minutes against Leicester were quite were quite poor I thought you know across the course of it and yes the second 45 were excellent and then obviously they've now put together a, a glorious 90 minutes and there are always going to be questions about a second season in the Premier League. But when you come out with a performance like that, a lot of those questions and a lot of those criticisms go away quite quickly, I think. And, and that's what Brentford needed in terms of getting that off the plate. And and now, obviously, the West London derby against Fulham coming up, in which will be a, it's just going to be a spicy one, I would imagine. Um, but let's stay on West London and actually move on to our second topic. We can stick around, go up the road to Stamford Bridge, where Chelsea and Spurs squared off one day later. And this one, it really did have everything, didn't it? Brilliant goal late drama touchline scraps between managers controversial refereeing calls one for the Premier League to replay over and over and over again a second battle of the bridge another one that's ended to all it's a lot to break down so we'll work through it but Chelsea took the lead in a suffocating display in this first half Kaladu Kulibaly marked his home debut with a stunning volley and Tottenham I thought Jay looked absolutely lost uh, how long have we got to kind of talk through all of this? Because uh, we need, we're going to need hours and hours and hours to, <laughs> to get through what happened today. I'll try and keep it moving, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, as you said, Tottenham looked completely lost. And I think that was probably a little bit of a wake-up call for a lot of people who have probably been disrespecting Chelsea a little bit over the last couple of weeks. There's been a lot of talk um, over the last few weeks and kind of ahead of the start of the season about where Chelsea kind of lie in, in, in the world of the big six at the moment. Yeah. And I've just seen lots of people put Tottenham as finishing third behind Manchester City and Liverpool and having maybe Arsenal finish fourth and Chelsea kind of drop out of the top four, which when you look at the quality of, of Chelsea's squad and how great a manager Thomas Tuchel is, it's quite, I think it's quite crazy that so many people were kind of predicting that. So that first 45 minutes where they were so convincing, so supreme, the way... I know Havertz didn't score from that chance, but where Sterling back heals it to him and Lloris makes a great save, the way they kind of pressed Tottenham in that moment, I think there were four players surrounding Sun in and out of possession. They were absolutely sublime. Tottenham were kind of suffocated. And yeah, like I said, it was a real wake-up call and a reminder to people that this is a really serious Chelsea side that's 
already been invested in quite heavily this summer. And you kind of think, well, if you get two or three more players in um, before the window closes, then they're definitely going to be in the conversation. Yeah, I mean, still lacking a little bit of a cutting edge, you know, for all that dominance, you look at the XG and whatever, and it actually doesn't pan out actually that different in the first half. But it felt like a display where they were like, by the way, we're back in control. And, and that's what Thomas Tuchel's sides are brilliant at right they, they control games they stop the opposition having any sort of ability to move and in the heat today in London it, it did feel a bit like okay how are Spurs just standing off because they can't or are they trying to conserve energy uh, obviously it burst into life in, in the second half and Chelsea had a couple of, of chances to, to kind of double that advantage but then they were even more aggrieved with the equaliser. Kai Havertz very much fouled in the build-up, although it is a long time between that foul and the ball reaching the back of the net. There are suspicions too of Richarlison offside being in, in, in Mendy's eye line as, as Hoiberg's strike whistle past him. I mean, for you, should this have counted? Are Chelsea's claims that this shouldn't have stood fair? It's definitely a foul on Havertz from, from Ben Takur, but I think... What, no matter what level of the game you're at, whether you're playing Sunday League football like I do or whether you're playing in the Premier League or the Champions League, if 44 seconds have then passed from that foul not being given to the opposition team scoring, you've had multiple opportunities to win that ball back and Chelsea didn't do that. Yeah. So I think they almost kind of need to acknowledge that it's not like it happened five or ten seconds later. There was a long enough period of time for them to kind of regain um, Chelsea had the ball again before the goal, right? So... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So there, there were further kind of like poor decisions or poor decision making before before Hoiberg hit the ball. It's such a tricky one with that offside because it just feels like when it's your team, you want it to be offside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, but I do think I understand why it was given because <laughs> it's so hard. I've, I've I've probably watched it about ten times now, and I still can't really kind of. I still don't fully know where yeah, I thought. I don't know yeah, I think, I think I do understand why it was given. I think there's enough of a gap um, for Mendy to kind of see Hoyerberg strike the ball, and <laughs> I still, I still, I'm really, still, I'm really struggling with this. But I think I'm going to say I understand why it was given. It, it's a frustrating one, um, but I, but I do get it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think once, the, you know, there's almost kind of a, a glutton for punishment element. Jorginho's mucking around his own box. And actually, weirdly, until <laughs> that point, I thought Jorginho was having a wonderful game. He was spraying the ball around the park, you know, very, very important. And then he does that and is immediately substituted by two who clearly wasn't happy with, with, with what he was doing in his own box. But I do feel there's a bit of like, okay, you've, you've kind of brought this upon yourselves and therefore the goal is going to be given because that's, it's just one of those football karma striking in so many ways. I mean, look, Conte celebration seemed to rile up Thomas Tuchel. Both men were booked for a tussle on the sidelines. It would come to a head again later and we'll talk about it. But Chelsea's response was pretty immediate. Rhys James slams home a second, put them up again. But the drama, well, really in, in so many ways was just beginning. In the 96th minute, Harry Kane rose highest to head in another equaliser, stunned Stamford Bridge into silence. But Chelsea again aggrieved as during the corner before the corner, which came Harry Kane scored for, um, VAR had a look at Christian Romero pulling Mark Kukurea's hair and decided there was no foul play. This one, I think Chelsea fans might have more of a case for, Jay. I don't even think you need to put the word might in that sentence. You know, this is where I think VAR really does kind of get like a bad name for itself because I don't understand how that cannot be given as a red card. It's... In my in my eyes, if anyone pulls my hair, I want them to get sent off. It's yeah. such a clear and it's such a clear and obvious red card. The fact that because of the way VAR rules work, um, Romero won't even face any retrospective action makes it even more bizarre. Um, I just cannot understand what the VAR are kind of doing in that moment to to not think to pull someone's hair back with so much force is not an aggressive action. I, I, I can't make any sense of it. So Chelsea fans and and Thomas Tuchel are completely right to feel massively agreed by that decision. And I know we're a very, very long time away from the end of the season, but hypothetically, if Chelsea miss out on the top four by one point or two points, you can kind of look at decisions that, like, like that and say, well, you know, you potentially cost us European football. I, again, I know we're a long, long way away from that, but when every point is so precious in the Premier League, decisions like that can have massive ramifications. Yeah, I think this is it. And, and Tuchel was furious, right, at the end and, and in his press conference. And you can completely see why. Like, you know, these are these are decisions that 
you just expect to get. And and I think that when you kind of add it all up and, you know, the passion of the game and, and all of it boiling over, it, it did feel like you're like, okay, Tuchel might lose it here. You'd imagine there's a hefty fine coming his way for some of the things that were said in those post-game press conferences, plus the fact he's now banned for a game because he was sent off, as, as, as was Antonio Conte. But Chelsea's concerns aside, a genuine classic for the neutral and a passionate, frantic game where temperatures and tempers boiled over on, on a number of occasions. Conte and Tuchel had that second scrap at full time, both sent off. It was a throwback in many ways, I think, to, to sort of the games of yesteryear, wasn't it? The rivalries threatened to spill over relatively regularly. There's always famous, you know, ones with Arsenal and Manchester United and the fact that these teams actively didn't like each other. Uh, and in an age where, you know, we see Klopp and Pep and that amount of respect between the two managers, and there's, there's an element of that. I find lovely right because I think you're looking at probably the two best managers in the world there and the amount of, of respect they have for each other is, is in some ways heartwarming but I mean what do you make of this is it good to see the passions because I quite like how much they clearly care yeah no definitely I really like it as well you, you never want it to kind of cross over into becoming slightly unsavory when they're kind of you know at the at the end I think it got a little bit like that um but it almost reminded me a little bit, and this might sound like a bit of a random example, of when Nick Kyrgios played Stefano Tsitsipas in Wimbledon earlier this yeah. year. It was just one of those events where there's so much kind of like history between the clubs or the players in that example. They're so super competitive that it just gets taken to the extreme. And I, don't, I, I think in the right circumstances and when it's controlled, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I do think it's a, it's a great advert for the Premier League just to have two managers so full, filled with passion, you know, Tuchel racing down the touchline. Like you, you just rarely see that kind of outburst of emotion from a manager. So I think it's absolutely brilliant. And it did also remind me of uh, maybe three, four years ago when something similar happened with Chelsea and Man United when Mauricio Sarri's backroom staff member kind of jumped right in front of Mourinho so um, all these flashpoints seem to happen with Chelsea. But no, I, th I think it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was just two managers of the highest quality, you know, facing off with each other in a tactical battle, both frustrating each other. A few, obviously, controversial refereeing decisions thrown in. It was almost kind of like a melting pot and it was probably always going to happen. Um, but it was, it's very entertaining in the very least, that's for sure. It feels like these two have a actually have a record recently of of having brilliant games between them as well. Now I know this is the first time Spurs have got anything in. I think this is the first they haven't got anything for five games. So to, you know to break that hoodoo is something. But also you know you're looking at this and going you know when Chelsea and T Tottenham square off these days. You kind of expect fireworks and it's, it's got that kind of reputation. Obviously, Liverpool and City are, have been far away, the, the best two teams in the league for, for some time now, I think. But you look at these two and there's a kind of mini thing. Obviously, the fan bases dislike each other intensely anyway. And, and now there's this kind of thing that's burst over onto the pitch. It does feel like when you see a Chelsea Tottenham game now, we're expecting the you know fireworks you know on off, on off the pitch. And, and that's a good thing for everyone, I think. Yeah, definitely. As you mentioned, Tottenham lost all four games they played against Chelsea in all competitions last season. There's been a lot of talk in pre-season about how, yeah, this Tottenham team under Antonio Conte, serious investment, Yves Basuma, Richarlison coming in, they're, you know, they're definitely going to finish third. Chelsea will be looking at that thinking, like, what on earth's going on? Yeah, that's disrespect. So these, uh, uh, yeah, definitely. And I think these two teams, potentially 10, 15 years ago, we're not necessarily competing for the same positions, but there was always a fierce rivalry. And now where there are much more of an equal footing, brimming with talent, brimming with elite managers, that rivalry is just getting stoked and stoked and stoked. It's going to be so fascinating to see what kind of happens between them over the course of the season. Already waiting with, with massive anticipation for the return leg, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and as you say, now completely competing for those same kind of spots. Two managers who are up there with the best in the world. Um, and everything feels like it's, it's set for that head-to-head -to, -head to, to kind of fizzle over through the rest of the season. Not just when they play each other, obviously, but they're going to be keeping an eye on each other's results, trying to make sure that they're ahead of the table. And, and, and I think that's a good thing think looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time sounds like a real game changer if you ask us make the right call and get the service you deserve with discover limitations apply See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Um, but we'll leave the Premier League there for a minute and we're going to go to Spain where La Liga got underway this weekend. And let's talk about Barcelona because whilst all the pre-match speculation was whether Barcelona would be able to field their new signings or not, they ultimately were able to get that done and everyone was in the match they scored. What they weren't able to get done though was was score. <laughs> they were denied by a combination of some spectacular goalkeeping, some wayward finishing do you reckon this isn't anything to worry about for Barcelona or just an off day at the office for the strikers combined with some kind of heroic defending and heroic goalkeeping and, and a Rio side that have obviously come here to, to scrap and fight and, and did that so well, especially in the first half of last season? I promise you, I'm not trying to be flippant when I say the fact that they've lost, not lost, the fact they've drawn this opening game is probably a calamity with the way that Barcelona as a football club is being run at the moment. So from the neutral, of course, it's nothing to be worried about. What worried about? You know, Real played quite well. I'm pretty certain they had a goal disallowed for offside in, yeah. in the final few minutes of the game. So they had their chances to kind of sneak something. But Barcelona, as we kind of mentioned, such um such a wide mix of new players that have kind of come into the fold. So much back back background drama. Sorry. It's going to take a while for everything to fall into place. But when you've got players like Robert Lewandowski, Rafinha, things are going to eventually click into place. There's just too much quality on show for it to not for it not to work. Yeah, I mean, look, Lewandowski put the ball in the back of the net early on, clearly offside. Anzu Fati denied off, you know, world-class save. Aubameyang had one cleared off the line by a right defender. Kessier also denied by the offside flag. And then it, I think the thing for me is that, you know, it gets it gets that point and frustration started to get the better of, of Sergio Busquets, who had an absolutely dreadful game, frankly. And he's given a second yellow for a flailing arm that hits Radamel Falcao in the face. My problem, or I suppose the overwhelming question that sits with me is that, you know, all this money's been spent and all these economic levers are being activated. And and actually, I think a lot has been made of this. And actually, you know, lots of clubs make money in very different ways. And the fact that Barcelona is, you know, a socios owned club and, and all of that means that they have to do things slightly differently. They can't just, you know, whack in a load of ex- external investment from an owner. And so I think there's been more made of these kind of economic levers than perhaps is is fair, considering the model that Barcelona use as, as an ownership model. Um, but the problem I have is that, you know, all these levers have been activated and I think they kind of rely on the fact that results on the pitch are going to get better quickly because the revenue streams in terms of attendances remaining high, getting to the latter Champions League stages, getting to the end end games of competitions, winning La Liga, things like that, they're all revenue streams and they all bring money back into the club. And I think that if things did start to spiral out of control on the pitch, and I'm not saying that's going to happen because it's one game and you know they were actually relatively unlucky in so <laughs> many ways. But if it did start to spiral, it's kind of the last thing that Barcelona can afford, both in a kind of moral sense and, and in an actual financial sense. Yeah, Barcelona have kind of pulled all of these economic levers out of the, out of the magic hat to kind of you know, fast track their progress on the football pitch. You know, they've not been competing in the top end of the Champions League for, for, for many years. Nobody can forget that that 8-2 humiliation to Bayern Munich a couple of years ago. This is a club that's fiercely ambitious. It doesn't like losing. And they've just looked lost for the last couple of years. They obviously lost Lionel Messi, who was kind of like the club's heartbeat last season. And so these economic levers have kind of been a way to kind of 
inject money as quickly as possible into the club, sign all these fancy new players and kind of get things up to speed as quickly as possible. But football doesn't work like that. And like you said, if they've kind of gone to such drastic measures to kind of keep the club running, it's not even Liquid, running. It's just, it? It, it, yeah, it, it, you know, if they've kind of invested and injected all this money into the club to kind of be able to sign all these players and they're not really being operated in the most sustainable manner, if things do kind of collapse and don't work out on the pitch, it's probably going to be quite scary to kind of see what happens. That, that the fan reaction will be massive. The fan backlash will be massive. But then also, like, what does that mean for, for Barcelona as a club? You know, are they just going to spiral into more and more debt? So definitely need things to kind of change as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think banking on bringing in good players and, and actually then moving forwards on the pitch. And obviously the last couple of years have been well, we've had we've had empty stadiums and and all sorts of things that that actually make sure that these revenues have gone down. And I can understand why some clubs are struggling. And I also suppose it's fair to give players time to acclimatise. And, and to be actually honest with you, some of these debutants I thought did okay. Andreas Christensen I thought was, was pretty solid. Franck Kessier did well when he came on off the bench. Rafinha looked a bit lost. And Lewandowski was kind of marked out of the game by some good work at the back from Rio. Frankie de Jong. Is, is the kind of last bit I want to talk about with Barcelona because he's been this summer's headline act in the world of the transfer saga. Um, he came on and did really well. And with Busquets now suspended, it feels like he gets that massive opportunity to stake his claim for a starting spot. So I suppose the question is, do you think with all these things rolling over in terms of the season beginning, that it's looking more and more likely that he's going to be remaining a Barcelona player this season? I kind of want to start by what you said about massive opportunity for him to kind of um, start now that Busquets is banned. Everybody's kind of got their own personal take on the situation, but when you kind of hear rumours about Barcelona trying to almost force him out of the club, if I was in his position, I wouldn't look at that as a massive opportunity. I'd kind of look at it as, you know, I'm I'm at an institution where they don't want me. That I'm not loved. What you know? Why am I going to kind of give my all to the club? I get that they're paying him a lot of money. Well. Actually, they're not really paying him a lot of money to play for them. It's such a bizarre situation. It's rumbled on for weeks and weeks and weeks. I think we've known for about, I read somewhere the other day, like 15 weeks since Man United first kind of entered talks with Barcelona about the young. And to kind of be this far on the transfer window and for, for no kind of real movement to have happened, especially since, you know, Barcelona had that Man United bid accepted. It does feel like the young's going to stay. And I kind of see one or two scenarios happening. He either gets kind of like integrated back into the team and some of the kind of weird scenes we saw in preseason games where he was getting played out of position and players looked like they weren't really passing to him. I think that will all kind of grind to a halt and, you know, we won't see that and won't even have to speculate that that's happening. So I think if we're speculating about players not passing to him, we're already in dangerous territory. Oh, yeah. Or he won't be able to get back into the team and this will kind of rumble on for the next six months to a year, which nobody wants so it's so difficult to predict. Yeah, I mean, look, Xavi's come out and said he's an important player for me. And, and I, I do wonder how much of this is Barcelona feeling that they need to sell as opposed to Xavi being like, I don't want Frankie de Jong around this side because I, I think his quality is is relatively obvious to everyone who's almost ever watched him, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> um, and I think it's going to be interesting. He clearly wants to be at Barcelona. He clearly wants to play for this club. When he moved there, there was all this talk about it being the dream move, you know, obviously following that Johan Cruyff path of going from Ajax and the, and coming into Barcelona and, and feeling like he was going to be the best player in the world in, in his own position. And, and obviously that's fallen off a little bit. But at the time, that felt like a very reasonable scenario for, for the next thing to kind of come along. And and so you, you're looking at this and going, he wants to stay here and prove himself and make sure that, you know, he doesn't go down. Because ultimately, if, if, if Frankie Young was to leave now... I would suggest that this Barcelona spell had been would be seen as a failure um, because he, he hadn't quite got to the levels that he expected. And it's been a rough couple of years for Barcelona in terms of, of what they've won and where they've been and, and all these different elements of, of, of what's going on. And so I, I feel like he's like, I'm not going anywhere because I want to prove my point, prove my worth. And, and I think that's relatively commendable, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned. I completely get what you're saying in terms of, why would I stay somewhere that doesn't want me? I, I wonder how much of the they don't want me is actually based in the club or, or the people picking the team um, and or as opposed to the boardroom are like, we really need to sell. We really need to sell someone or we're going to be in serious trouble here. So I, I suppose there's that element of things to, to kind of look at. But 
in some ways, I think it's, you know, especially if they're like, okay, the board are going to sell him. He was a bit kind of against it. For him to stay and fight for a place and especially come on and play like he did yesterday. Yes, they didn't win. But when he, you know, came on, I thought this Barcelona team looked far more effective uh, and far more able to do the things that they want to do. Um, and so I, I do kind of commend him in, in, in so many ways for thinking, right, I'm going to improve, stay, fight myself and, and make sure that I earn this place because I want to go down as a success at this club. But then my only kind of response to that would be Barcelona are just not the most well-run club at all by any stretch of the imagination. And if you're even in a situation where the manager really wants to keep you, but he's facing pressure from the boardroom to potentially sell you, then at some point that relationship's going to break down and deteriorate. Whether it happens in a month, two months, six months or a year, it's going to happen. And so you kind of got to ask yourself, I'm a footballer. I've got a really limited time window of my career, maybe 10, 15 years. And like you kind of said, Dion wants to be known as one of the best players in his position. Is he maybe looking at it thinking, okay, it's time to get out. But then on the flip side of that, do you leave Barcelona, who are in a state of crisis, this, for a team This is exactly like what I was going to say to you. I was like, you can't, you can't, be, like, you can't be like, Barcelona aren't the best run club in the world and then <laughs> and suggest you're going to move to Man United, I don't think. Uh, not at this point, in, uh, not at this point in the, in the world anyway. Um, but yeah, an interesting one. We'll be keeping an eye on all things Frankie. Um, obviously, I think he will get those opportunities, especially with Nico going out on loan to Valencia. So uh, there is kind of no one else that can play in that baseline. So we'll see how we go with Frankie. Um, but we are going to finish this episode with a little flyby around Europe keep you on top of all of the rest of the weekend's action starting in France with PSG who scored five again it's 10 goals Jay in their first two league arm games it's a little bit ridiculous and they scored four in the Trophée de Champion against Nantes so their first three competitive games 14 goals uh, for PSG who are absolutely cooking uh, there was a little bit of drama though uh, some comments on Kylian Mbappe basically walking away from a counter-attack when he wasn't passed the ball Vitinha instead opted to pass to Lionel Messi the ball goes down the flank um, gets crossed in and where Kylian Mbappe you'd expect to be he's just sort of wandering around on the left touch line and kind of throwing his hands around he also missed a penalty it was 2-0 at the time so it's not like you know this was a level game and, and they felt like they were in control the whole way through but a worrying sign Jay for PSG or is this just a lot of ado about nothing again this is a little bit of a tricky situation because sometimes you look at players like Kylian Mbappe and Cristiano Ronaldo for example and that kind of relentless desire to always want the ball and to kind of expect better from your teammates is probably one of the reasons why they're as freakishly talented as they are. Because, you know, they are, you know, we're talking about some of the best players in the world. And in Mbappe, we're really talking about the kind of heir to, to Ronaldo and Messi. So in one sense, I'm like, I can kind of understand you've got such high, high, high demands of, of yourself and your teammates why you've been frustrated. But again, the flip side of that is, had you continued with your run? you would have arrived in the box as that cross was played across and scored. Yes, he missed the penalty, but then there are also other, other couple of moments in the game where he tried to be over-elaborate with the ball in the box. Yeah, There was one chance where had he just hit it first time, he would have scored, no doubt about it. And he kind of tried to go back and dribble past a couple of defenders. And for two games, in, two games into the season, to see things like that, you just wonder, are we going to get to the Champions League last 16 quarterfinals again? PSG are going to get knocked out or PSG are going to have a really bad performance and it's going to be all over the news again that Kylian Mbappe is unhappy and Kylian Mbappe is frustrated and there's tension between him and Neymar or other members of the squad. So I don't think it's anything massively, I don't think it's anything to be massively concerned about now, but is it potentially a, a seed uh, to kind of follow and see what happens over the course of the season, then, then definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one. There are rumours of a rift between Mbappe and Hakimi and then Neymar and Messi on the other side, which seems like a bit of a strange one, but um, we, we'll see. I think there's often these things are blown out of proportion. It just did feel a little bit off, that that bit of the game and, and, and that moment where he, he was like, nope, not going up there. I'm just going to wander around yeah. and, and walk I, towards I think, the touchline. I think, think it's important to remember, and I've said this to other people before, in our jobs, there are people in the office that we don't like, but the, but we all kind of need to band together sometimes and just kind of like work really well together to achieve like a common goal. And I'm telling you that happens in every single dress, dressing room, whether it's a non-league club, whether it's a team in the NBA or whether it's PSG, there will be arguments. It's just whether those players can kind of, kind of put their egos to the side and sort out that conflict. Neymar and Mbappe are 
two of the best players in the world. They probably both want that team to be run through them. Then you throw Messi into the mix. Yeah. It's understandable egos are going to collide. The biggest question mark is whether they can kind of smooth that over and kind of get past these little rifts and these little bits of tension to kind of perform when it matters in the Champions League and, and, and massive competitions like that. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't affected the the, the kind of goals going in for PSG exactly. so far, so we'll see. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and Leon's game was postponed and Marseille were held to a one-all draw with Brest. Although Arsenal loanee Nuno Tavares scored his second goal in two games from a beautifully worked corner routine. Um, but Marseille did drop points, which means that PSG sit all alone at the top of the table after just two game weeks. This is something we've seen a little bit around the place to be honest you know we, obviously it's just Arsenal and Man City who have, have perfect records in the Premier League PSG are the only ones uh, in, in France and it's only Bayern and Dortmund um, who who have six points after two in Germany and you know talking of Bayern they struggled a little bit at first against a very intense Wolfsburg side but some Jamal Musiala magic broke the deadlock and then Thomas Muller doubled their advantage shortly afterwards and they saw it out and um, Interesting one, this, Jay. Jamal Musiala now top scorer in the Bundesliga after two games. Um, he also became Bayern's all-time top goal scorer under the age of 20. He feels like he's really coming into his own, Musiala. You know, just one of those players that's a joy to watch and was kind of in and out of the side last year, but clearly someone that the Nagelsmann likes and trusts. Um, and he just seems to be shining away, you know, at the start of this season. It's lovely to see. I'll confess and say that I didn't know he'd started the season that well, but it's making me very happy because I did a World Cup prediction a couple of weeks ago and I said the surprise performer could be Jamal Musiala. So now I'm thinking <laughs> in it. November and December, I'm going to look like an absolute genius. <laughs> but that's the thing with, with, with players who are you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. Sometimes they come into, this, come into the side and they sparkle immediately and then they kind of fade out. But that's kind of like the nature of being a young, talented footballer you're at the very, very beginning of your career. There's kind of so much to learn. And Musiala being around the likes of kind of like Muller and those players that you mentioned, Sane, Mane, you're, you're just going to grow, you're just going to improve. And it, it's exciting to kind of see players like that blossom and take their chances when they come. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing with Musiala is he's kind of been drip fed in, right? He started obviously really, really hot. Um, and then he was kind of removed from the limelight by Bayern and they've kind of just kept bringing him in more and more and more and it feels like this is maybe his stage to explode and you see some of the names you know you mentioned the names he's around he's keeping some of those names out of the side and that in itself is a real testament to one his ability and two the fact that Nagelsmann clearly is like this is the guy this is this is someone that I'm going to yeah. make sure is it is a part of this side um, over at Borussia Dortmund they made it back to back wins with a very impressive second half performance against Freiburg they've gone in 1-0 down uh, halfway and um, scored three in the second half another young English winger Jamie Bino Gittens on the score sheet and an assist to his name so that was nice to see uh, as well uh, and Timo Werner scored upon his return to Leipzig that wasn't enough for them to see off a spirited Cologne side twice fought back from a goal down to draw two or um, Chelsea maybe could have done with that today um, but that's not <laughs> that isn't the last time I'm going to say a Chelsea oh, well, a Chelsea exit uh, has scored on their return to their old <laughs> club um, the headlines from Spain aside from the aforementioned boss so know that a heavily rotated Real Madrid followed up their midweek Super Cup win over Eintracht Frankfurt with a win against Almeria. Although it was anything but routine, they went down 1-0 very, very early on in this one. Um, Equalising the second half through Lucas Vasquez, but the winner was something out of, out of a fairy tale book. You know, we saw David Alaba came off the bench as they had a free kick on the edge of the box, stepped up, first touch, postage stamp. You're just like, you just can't do that. It's just, <laughs> it's just not okay. Um, it's just one of one of those moments. You saw he came on and he just moved everyone else away from the ball and was like, this is mine. And then just pinged it top in. You're like, okay, cool. He's just, he's just, he's just got that in his locker. And then now Mary had been brilliant all game. And suddenly you've like, oh no, we've just brought David Alaba on and he's absolutely nailed it. So nothing you can do really uh, against that one but an interesting one um, in the La Liga curtain raiser Sevillas fell to a shock defeat away to Osasuna whilst Unai Emery's Villarreal looked in fine shape they beat newly promoted Real Valladolid 3-0 um, back in the Premier League Gabi Jesus scored twice assisted twice for Arsenal as they beat Leicester 4-2 at the Emirates a truly sensational performance from the former Man City man this is it isn't it he's found his he's found his groove he's the main man this is this could be a very special season I think for Gabriel Jesus do you know what I just realised a minute ago when you said Arsenal and Man City were the, the only teams with a 100% record in the Premier League? Mm. Exactly a year ago yesterday, or 13th of August, 
um, was when Arsenal lost 2-0 to Brentford. So they obviously then lost their first three, three games of that season, 5-0 to Man City. Imagine saying a year later that they would, you know, be, I know it's only two games, but would be keep kind of keeping stride in Manchester City and just looking like a completely different team. I'm not too sure if anybody would have believed you. No, I think um, you're right. But yeah, I, th- I think, I don't think I'm the only person who was a little bit unsure if Jesus kind of had the the ruthlessness to to be the main striker in a team. You know, I've seen him play for Man City over the years and there's been a couple of times where I felt like he wasn't particularly clinical in front of goal. And when he did get an opportunity, when Aguero wasn't playing before Aguero left, I never felt like he really took it. Yeah. But certainly he just seems to be absolutely brimming with confidence in our Arsenal team. The way they're set up just seems to kind of like suit his kind of abilities perfectly. Um, and I mean, that, that that first goal he scored was was simply sublime. Somebody told it's me it had so a, an XG of 0.05. So um, <laughs> in, enjoy that. It's a, it's a well, it's a lovely fact, isn't it? A lovely fact. It was, it was very good. Uh, two goals, two assists. That's about as much as you can ask for, really, on a home debut. Um, and and the Emirates has a new hero wearing that number nine shirt. It was, it's nice to see. I think he's, you know, struggled a little bit even when Aguero left, trying to get out of the shadow of what Aguero had been for Manchester City. Yeah. Um, and and with Pep's rotation, not that there's anything wrong with that. He's clearly a, an unbelievable coach with the with the success rate to answer it. But it felt that he really didn't find that groove. It now feels like Jesus is already in his groove uh, under Arteta at Arsenal and it's going to be uh, one to keep an eye on this season I think um, but talking of City they put, they tore Bournemouth apart they won 4-0 at the Etihad um, so yeah it's a, it, it's all going to plan for City so far I really enjoyed that Haaland completed two passes one of them was a kickoff and the other one was an assist that's how you uh, that's how that's what I call efficient um, even if he wasn't <laughs> even if he wasn't having the biggest game of his life um, that's, that's what you want for um, and finally in Italy Milan began their Scudetto defence with a thumping 4-2 win over Udinese at San Siro. Antti Rebic and Brahim Diaz both shone for the Rossoneri. Inter left it late to join them on three points, needing a 94th minute winner from Denzel Dumfries, of all people, to see off newly promoted Lecce. Although, and I told you I'd say this again, Romelu Lukaku had given them the lead on his <laughs> official return to the club as early as the second minute. Um, look, a good day for, well, a good weekend, shall we say, for, for ex-Chelsea strikers returning to their former clubs. Uh, and finally, Roma fielded Paolo Dybala for the first time since his move from Juventus they ran out 1-0 winners over Salernitana it was a it was a sticky game in so many ways there were flashes of quality from him alongside Nicolas Zaniolo and uh, Tammy Abraham or the Trident as I'm going to call them from here on in um, and I think <laughs> they're going to only get better as we go along but there's lots to be excited about in Roma uh, and with that side um and with that, we are pretty much done for today. Um, and all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much to Jay Harris for all of your insight and analysis here today, mate. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure of talking to you. So thanks for having me. And thank you. Well, thank you for listening to this first episode of the Weekend Review here on The Athletic Soccer. We have had a wonderful time. We'll be back next week to bring you all the news from across the continent. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Take it easy. Peace.